The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So I can still remember, I can still remember the smell of the room. I can still remember the color of the carpet. I can remember the color of the chairs. Um, I can remember really almost everything about the evening about 10 years ago when I sat in my youth group room as a youth leader. I think I was about 18 years old. And uh, my youth pastor, John, was sitting up in front of us, maybe about 40 or 50 kids, um, some, some leaders, etc. And um, he was giving a gospel presentation and just inviting anybody that wanted to give their heart to Jesus to actually physically stand up. And I remember as I was sitting there, I was sort of praying, just, Lord, would you please just give somebody um, just the, the, the gift of understanding the gospel and grace. And two seats down from me, there was a, another kid that was about four years younger than me, he was about 16 years old. And he was uh, wearing baggy pants. He had long, curly hair and a beanie. And he looked pretty rough. He looked like the kid that you wouldn't necessarily want to uh, bump into um, on a dark street at night. Um, his name was Shiloh. And I just remember thinking, man, Lord, if you could just reach out to that kid. Um, I'd seen Shiloh a lot in my life. I'd seen him about four years before that. Um, he was always the kid that was younger than everyone else, but beat everyone else up. He was always the kid in fights. He was always the kid um, robbing people. He was always the kid getting hauled off the juvenile hall. He was the kid that his brother um, was in the state penitentiary for 15 years for, on robbery, and that was who taught him everything he knew. This was the kid. I saw him years later in the juvenile hall ministry and uh, in his Velcro shoes and his um, khaki pants and the jumpsuits, whatever they wear in there. And I remember um, looking at his his hard stare as he stared me down as I tried to tell him about Jesus, giving me this look like I don't care, I don't care about anything that you have to say. The last kid anyone would expect to be there, right? So here I am sitting, it's a Tuesday night, and um, my youth pastor's up there inviting someone to, anyone, to receive the gospel, and I just said, Lord, would you reach out and touch that kid? And I remember the goosebumps, I remember the heart beat speeding up, I remember all the feelings of it as I looked over and I saw Shiloh stand up and received Jesus, and it just blew my mind. I was so thankful. I got up immediately. I went and gave him a hug, and I prayed for him. Uh, over the next weeks and months, Shiloh was at my house. He was, um, I was giving him commentaries. I was teaching him the Bible. I was inviting him for meals. I was giving him rides. Um, I was helping him in any way that I possibly could, along with other friends, um, and I was just watching him grow in the Lord, but unfortunately, his roots were not deep, right? His roots were shallow, and they didn't go down deep into his heart yet. It was still a very new understanding of the gospel. And, um, and then I remember one night he came over to my house uh, with some friends, and he had a DVD with him called Zeitgeist. And, uh, and, and I was like, what's that? And he seemed kind of like a little shaken up, a little scared, like something had just really messed with him. And he said, I just got this DVD from a friend, and it really messed with me. Uh, this DVD was like this compilation of... Um, People trying to debunk, uh, quote-unquote, myths, everything from the Trade Center 9-11 to, as you might expect, the Bible. And he really was shaken by this. He really was, was upset by this. And I watched, even though we sat and even though we talked and even though we explained and even though we taught, even though we discipled, I watched um, month after month, day after day, year after year, as Shiloh began to question and, and question and question, and then I lost sight of him for a long time. And then I got a call years back, uh, from, I can't remember who it was from, and said that Shiloh had stabbed another kid in uh, Hawthorne Park and was looking at life in um, state penitentiary, which I think they've, they've taken that down, but he is in state penitentiary now. I don't know how he's doing. I don't know um, what's going on in his heart. I can only pray for him, um, but I say all that. 
I say all that to say that a seed was planted in his heart, and that seed came in the form of a round disc with a hole in it. And, and so what we're talking about tonight, you know, I, I don't want to get super serious. It's not all going to be super serious, but I just wanted to start off with this because I want you guys to understand that what we're talking about tonight is not a breeze over topic, okay? It's not something we just breeze over, oh, just entertainment. Yeah, that's something the church debates. That's something that, that we all argue about. No, this is a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal, and, and, and I'll explain sort of why. Um, TV, okay, the average American over the age of two spends more than 40 hours a week watching live television, okay? Over 40 hours a week. Now, children from 2 to 11 um, watch an average of 24 hours of TV a week or three and a half hours a day, okay, which is quite a bit. Um, and then the interesting thing is, is that as you get older, you actually end up watching more and more and more television. By the time you're 65, the average person watches 48 hours a week, okay? That's seven hours a day of television. Last week we talked about work. We sort of split the work day into a pie chart and we looked at what's left. Okay, the average person, let's say, has maybe four hours. Most of us spend the remainder of our free time watching some sort of TV, taking in some sort of entertainment. Uh, it used to be that you uh, had to go to the movie theater to watch a movie. Now we can watch it in our homes. It used to be you could just watch it in your homes. Now you can watch it on our phones. You can watch it on your computer. You can live stream it. You can watch it with Netflix whenever you want, wherever you want, however you want. Um, most of us, if not all of us, have one of these in our pockets now, which gives us unlimited and complete access to pretty much any form of entertainment that you could want in the world whenever we want. So we never have a moment without really being entertained at some point. Um, this is some interesting t uh, statistics. Uh, they did a study that said that um, you are, in general, tempted to check your Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter every 30 seconds. Okay, so they put someone in a room, hooked them up, whatever, and said, don't check your Facebook. And every 30 seconds, or they just went around the meeting a lot, every 30 seconds they had a temptation of, well, I wonder what's going on on my phone, I wonder what's going on on my phone, I wonder what's going on on my phone. Constant, constant nagging of wanting to check that. Uh, the average college student spends nine hours a day on their smartphone. Okay, that's absolutely accurate. Absolutely accurate. Nine hours a day. Um, I went to jury duty a few months ago, and it was crazy. I was in a room with more people than in, in here, maybe 200 people. And as a pastor, I was like, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to talk to some people and get to know some, some new friends, maybe meet some non-Christians. And as I'm sitting in the room looking around, hey, who could I go talk to? Every single person was on their phone, watching YouTube videos, checking news, looking at Facebook Instagramming, Twittering, how much they hate being there. Whatever it was, everyone was engaged on their cell phone. The other day I was in the hub, which is where our high schoolers meet. Before Jeremy got over there, there was four students over there, and I went over to get some coffee, and I couldn't help but look over and notice that there was four students sitting in proximity to each other, facing each other, and every single one of them was on their phone. They weren't saying a word to each other. It was dead quiet in there, so I had to laugh at them. I, of course, took my phone out and took a picture of them. Uh, you would do the same thing. It was funny. Music. We have unlimited access to music, right? Used to be you buy a CD. If you want a certain song, you got to buy the whole CD to get the song. You can listen to it maybe at your house, maybe in your car. Well, now we can listen to any song, any place, anytime, anywhere. We listen to whatever we want, whenever we want. We have Spotify, we have iTunes radio. You have complete access to music whenever you want. Information, blogs, news articles, you just swipe your finger and you're reading the news. We have access to billions upon billions of words of data and information at our fingertips. Entertainment is so easily accessible. Uh, video games, 155 Americans, I'm sorry, let me start over. 155 
million Americans play video games. A little different. The average, this surprised me, the average age of a gamer is 34 years old. Isn't that interesting? Not 18, not 16, right? 34. Um, that was on purpose, just so you guys, <laughs> I swear, I swear it was on purpose. Um, it was fairly easy, though, to do, which means I'm still young. Uh, <laughs> the video game industry has an annual revenue of $10.5 billion a year. Gaming is now something that people uh, would prefer to do, for the most part, rather than life itself. Um, we have online gaming where you have friends that you don't even know that you talk in a headset with and play Halo and shoot aliens all day long. And really, the heartbeat of entertainment for Americans isn't really just even entertainment anymore. It's not even just about being entertained. It's about an experience, right? It's not just about entertain me, sidetrack me. It's about give me an experience. That's why when you go to a rock concert now, it's not just enough for the band to come out. It's every possible sense has to be overloaded. We have lights. We have fog. We have music that's so loud, it, it, it will blast you. I was going to say blast your clothes off like uh, Back to the Future, but that's probably inappropriate. Because um, remember that movie where he plugs the speaker and squirrel. Um, anyways, it's all, about, it's all about the experience now. It's not just enough to be entertained. We have 3D movies. We have things that engage us in every possible sense of who we are. Now, what should we think about this? Okay, this is the culture that we live in. We cannot escape. Now, right now we're doing a series called Biblical Worldview, okay, with the tagline, gospel-centered thinking in an ever-changing world. Our world is transforming so fast. That's why I put a subway train on. Here's this woman just like watching this subway train blow by. Our culture is transforming so quickly, and one of the biggest things that has transformed our culture is the age of technology, right? That just within the last like 50 to 60 years, we have access to more information and entertainment than we ever have in the entire history of mankind, so things have changed, and we have to stop as Christians and say, how do we live in this age? How do we live in the digital age? How do we live in a culture that's obsessed with entertainment? This biblical worldview series essentially is us looking at the world and say, what do we think of these things? What does the Bible say about these things? How do we live in this world? So I'm going to give you my outline just so you kind of know where I'm going. We're just going to do three things. The first thing is I want to make a case for entertainment. I want to make a case for entertainment. In other words, why I think entertainment's a good thing. Then I'm going to argue with myself and make a case against entertainment. Okay, so we're going to argue sort of the two against each other. And then lastly, um, more on the, the applicable end, hopefully we're going to look at five course correcting questions. So five questions to ask yourself concerning entertainment. Everybody got that? Yes? Everybody awake? Okay, let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for this time. Lord, I do not take this lightly. God, it is a privilege to be able to speak gospel truth to your people that are hungry for it. Pray you to open our hearts, open our minds, give us wisdom, give us truth, Lord. Pray that I wouldn't get in the way of what you want to say. Lord, may this be helpful. May this be enriching and enlightening, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the case for entertainment. Why I'm thankful for entertainment. Number one, uh, and there's three of these, so if you're taking notes, but number one, God made it. We screwed it up. Okay, this has been the theme of every biblical worldview that I've done so far is that, guess what? God made it. We screwed it up. Okay, entertainment in and of itself is not evil. Any more than money is not evil. Sex is not evil. Marriage is not evil. Um, none of the things that we often think of as evil are evil. They are evil when they are obtained by or used in a way by a man. That's sinful. Why? Jesus says this. He says, 
It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth. It's not what goes into his mouth. It's what comes out of his mouth. What Jesus is saying there is he's going against everything that our culture says. Our culture says that we are basically good people, the good human beings corrupted by our surroundings. But why are people terrorists over in the Middle East? Well, because of the way they were raised because of the poor uh, inequality, because of all these things. Whereas the Christian worldview would say, no, they're actually evil, just like we are. And they're capable of all kinds of evil, just like we are. So entertainment is actually good. Entertainment is created by God. Okay, can we all agree on that? But when man gets a hold of it, and man is evil, it becomes evil. Okay, so man has used entertainment for all sorts of evil that we could talk about. But we have to make that distinction. So therefore, we cannot broad brush all entertainment into the garbage, okay? Which, believe it or not, a lot of Christians do that, okay? Anything to do with entertainment is evil. Um, we're going to go be Amish on a farm, uh, and that's just the way to, that's really a, a pretty shallow view um, of what entertainment is. Number two, the case for entertainment, why I'm thankful for it. Number two is this. Entertainment is how we all heard the gospel, Okay, now before you stone me and say I'm a heretic, let me explain, okay? Entertainment is how we all heard the gospel. Entertainment is, in essence, at, in its DNA, in its base form, entertainment is story. It's narrative, right? It's understanding some sort of story, whether it's a song. The best songs tell stories, don't they? The best movies are stories that you relate with, stories that make you think. So entertainment, in its essence, is a story, now, man has always been intrigued by entertainment. As long as man has been around, man has told stories, right? That's something that we can trace back all the way back to, to the oldest man that we have history of. A good story can connect us and ground us to the reality of what is, is to be human. When we see other humans, whether it be on a screen or on a book or in a play, when we see other humans suffering and struggling or, 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 or um, experiencing joy or marriage or all of these things, we can relate with them, okay? It gives us insight into what it is to be human. A good story can give us a feeling that there's something bigger out there. You ever watch a movie and have just sort of inspiration that there's more? that there's, there's something out there a little bit more exciting than just your day-to-day life. A good story can inspire our hearts to bravery, love, faithfulness, and perseverance. I believe that truly, if you look at the Bible, one of God's primary means of communicating his truth is not through dry, seemingly theology, but actually through narrative. The majority of the Bible is made up of narrative. Yes, we have some letters that Paul and different uh, apostles wrote. Yes, we have some... Uh, some uh, Wisdom literature, yes, we have those different things, but essentially most of the Bible is made up in narrative, in story, okay? Whether that be historical story, um, whatever it be, Jesus himself spoke, preached in story, didn't he? He gave parables. Um, think of the parable of the, um, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus engaged his audience and communicated truth in a way that opened up their hearts to understand it in a deeper way, and he did that primarily through story. Stories appeal to our brokenness, don't they? Stories appeal to our brokenness. Listen to this. Uh, In her 1950 book, uh, Hollywood, The Dream Factory, anthropologist Hortense Powdermaker said this. She said, movies are successful largely because they meet some of modern man's deepest needs. Okay? Movies are successful largely because they meet some of modern man's deepest needs. That means that the reason that you're sort of drawn into a good story, a good movie, a good book, is because it's almost pulling you that there's something better, that there's something bigger, that there's something greater. 
Screenwriting guru Robert McKee said this. He said, the world now consumes films, novels, theater, television in such quantities and with such ravenous hunger that the story arts have become humanity's prime source of inspiration as it seeks to order chaos and gain insight into life. Did you catch that? We consume more TV, more film, more novels, more stories with a ravenous hunger, more than we ever have before, and therefore that has made entertainment our prime source of the way that we think, the prime source of inspiration in life. Now, think about this. This is why countries like North Korea are very limiting on what their people can ingest when it comes to Western entertainment. Did you know that? That's why they don't allow movies. They don't allow a lot of the things that we take in because they know that at the heart of our entertainment in the West is ideology. They know that, and they don't want them thinking. That's why uh, Hitler burned the books, right? Because of the ideologies that stories bring, because a story can bring down a nation. A story can bring revolution. Now, I would agree with what he said, but I would say that it's always been that way, that people have always loved stories. They've always been drawn into stories. We just have more access now to them than ever before. This is interesting. George Lucas, you guys know who he is, writer of Star Wars, he said, about his motion or his motivation behind his work as a storyteller, he said, quote, I'm trying to figure out what we are, what life is, and what are some of the truths that lie beneath the surface. So, you know, even George Lucas gets that when he's writing a movie, he's trying to think through the deeper things of life. That movies themselves can, in some sense, help you to do that. Now, this is interesting. George Lucas, when he wrote Star Wars, he had this idea in mind that was not his. He had an idea in mind, not of how do I create a story that's never been told, but when he wrote Star Wars, he said, how do I tell a story that every human loves, that every human is wired to long for, but tell it in a sort of a different way? And so that's exactly what he did with Star Wars. He said, there's, a, there's a sort of a, a recipe for the story that intrigues all. And it goes like this. Here's, tell me if this sounds familiar. Uh, first, you need a world that's in a state of decay, headed towards destruction, controlled by an evil dictator, okay? So in Star Wars, right, it starts off, the, at least the, the old ones, right, starts off with um, the Empire um, controlling uh, all of space, and you have this evil dictator, uh, Darth Vader, and so on and so forth. Then a man from humble beginnings is chosen, one to restore balance, okay? Luke Skywalker, right? So he's sort of this, like, you wouldn't expect him to be special, but he is. He's the one, he's the special one that's going to bring balance to the universe. It's going to um, bring freedom to everyone that's being oppressed. Then that man is tested in every way, okay? He has to sacrifice himself. He goes through peril. Uh, in the second Star Wars, we see him get his hand chopped off. We see him find out Darth Vader's his father, etc. I know I sound like a huge nerd right now, but it's, it's true. Um, Lucas wrote it for a reason. And then lastly, we see salvation come through our hero, through our star, the one that came from humble beginnings, the one that had to suffer. Now think about the gospel. You think Lucas just thought this up? You think he's just so brilliant that he was like, oh, I'm going to write the best story ever. No, he knew that there is a story of all stories. And it goes like this, that the world and the flesh and the devil have destroyed much of this world. That man is captive to his own sin, dead in trespasses in sin, unable to cure his own sickness of sin, unable to create culture without destruction and pain. So he sent his son, humble beginnings, Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth who lived, or from Galilee, pardon me, that, that lived around a lake in a poor community. He 
called up this Jesus, the Son of God, who, though he had humble beginnings, was the greatest man who ever lived. And then through his life and ministry, Jesus was tested with peril, right? His friends betrayed him. He sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, he was tempted by Satan, wasn't he? Uh, in the wilderness. And then salvation comes through this one man for the whole world by sacrifice. Think of, like, I could think of 50 stories that have that story. Think of Lord of the Rings. Think of C.S. Lewis's book. Do you think these guys were just brilliant and thought of these stories? This is the story of all stories because God wrote it, right? Because God wrote it. There's something in man that desires to hear the gospel. And when these movies appeal to man's very core DNA, it's really appealing to our, our, our desire to hear the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Um, God writes the best stories, not Tolkien, not Lucas. We have to understand that truth is truth, okay? No matter who speaks it. If Hollywood gets it right, it's usually by accident, but they do sometimes. And we have to acknowledge that all truth is glory to God, and sometimes we can be encouraged by movies that are actually not Christian movies. Steve Turner, in his book, Pop Cultured, which, by the way, I resourced that book a lot. Fantastic book if you want to kind of learn more about this stuff. He says this. He says, truth is truth. Whoever may say it, and because people are made by God, they can't help discovering and passing on truth. It may be mixed in with falsehoods. It is our job to work it out, but we must revere truth whenever we encounter it. One of my favorite movies of all time is called Gladiator. You guys ever seen that before? I'm not going to judge you. Um, it's a good movie. Um, it's called Gladiator, and I love Gladiator because even though it's not a Christian movie, it has such uh, a sense of the gospel about it. It's such, it's such a sense of like servant leadership, this great commander that was humbled and made a servant and a slave, and yet still rose because he was a leader, and it was just who he was, and gave himself to a nation for the greater good and faithfulness and all of these things that I think we see in Scripture so much. It's a fantastic story, and I love that. It speaks to me, encourages me. And then lastly on this, um, stories gave us the Bible. Do you know that? I know I said that most of the Bible is narrative, but what you don't maybe know is that for the most of the ancient world, um, especially the Hebrews, they couldn't write things down. Do you know that? They couldn't write everything down. It wasn't until um, later on that they were actually able to start recording um, scripturally. So what would happen is the Jews would orate and tell stories to their kids, and then their kids would tell stories to their kids, and so on and so forth, and they were actually fantastic at it. So you can imagine being a young Jewish boy or girl sitting in your home at night and your dad's telling you the story of how God um, saved the, the people of Israel from the most powerful man on earth when they were slaves and parted a giant Red Sea so they could pass through the middle and then they wandered in the wilderness and manna rained down from heaven or how Yahweh, Jehovah breathed stars and created the universe and you're just sitting like a, as a kid like you would watching a movie just so on every word, just hanging on every word, just waiting to hear the next line of the story. This is nothing new. And God uses entertainment. God uses stories for the gospel. Number three, entertainment gives us insight into cultural climate. Entertainment gives us insight into cultural climate. My third reason why I'm thankful for it. Um, follow me on this. There's, history shows us, okay, history shows us that Every great nation that's ever existed has existed for no more than about 200 years, okay? Uh, no more than about 200 years. And, and historians have, have noticed a trend, 
okay? A sequence, sort of a cyclical idea of what happens in the life of a nation in those 200 years. So I'm going to read through the steps. Just tell me if this sounds familiar, okay? Step one, religious or physical bondage under government, okay? Bondage creates courage, okay? So think about our nation, right? We were under bondage from Britain. Um, that created courage. That created, led to a revolution. Stage three, courage leads to means of liberty. Liberty leads to abundance, Abundance leads to selfishness. Selfishness leads to complacency. Complacency leads to apathy. Apathy leads to moral decay. Moral decay leads to dependence. And dependence leads right back to bondage, which is right where you start. It's this cycle. Now, I say that to say that as Christians, we need to know where, at, where our culture is at in this cycle so that we know how to preach the gospel into it. Uh, Paul, the apostle, the ultimate missionary, right? He went to these Greek cities, places that had never heard Christianity, places that had all kinds of different thought and philosophies, places that worshipped everything. Paul would come in and stroll into these cities, and do you know where he would go? He would go not only to the synagogue, but he would also go to the epicenters of thoughts, the place where the philosophers would speak, the place where the politicians would argue, the place where the governors would govern. And he would go there because he knew that that was where he could keep his finger on the pulse of the, the lies that people were believing. So in Athens, Paul goes to the Areopagus, and he says in Acts 17, 20 through, 22 through 23, he says, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, where therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What's Paul doing here? Paul is brilliant. He goes in and he makes observations as he goes, and he notices that they're worshiping everything. In fact, they're so concerned about worshiping everything that they actually have an idol that is to the unknown God just in case they missed one, okay, just in case they missed one. Now, question, where does Paul go to preach the gospel in Athens? He goes where he knows that he can understand the culture. How does Paul know they're worshiping thousands of gods? Because he uses his eyes to see what's happening in the culture. How does Paul know how to contextualize the gospel? In other words, how does Paul know how to preach the gospel in a way that's going to pierce their heart? Because he understands their false thinking by viewing their culture. Why do I say all that? Okay, as Christians, we have to wake up and understand that our culture is ever-changing. Okay, that our culture has shifted so much, not only politically, but, but religiously, philosophically, especially theologically. In so many ways, our culture has shifted that if we're going to have any hope of preaching the gospel to our coworkers, we better understand what it is that they're worshiping. If we don't understand what it is they're worshiping, we can't tell them how to worship correctly. And much like Greece, our culture worships everything and nothing at the same time. So entertainment, TV, culture, all of these things allow us to know how to speak the gospel with clarity and to contextualize in a way that people can understand. Does that make sense? Okay, take all that, put it in a folder, okay? Uh, case against entertainment now. We've talked about my case for Entertainment, let's look at the case against entertainment. Everybody good? Okay. I think entertainment is dangerous to believers in three primary ways. Okay, so if you're taking notes, three primary ways. Number one, entertainment offers escape from reality. Escape from reality. So 
I believe truly at the core of idolatry, and I'll unpack what that is in a second, at the core of idolatry is always desiring to change God from what he really is into something that more suits what you want. Okay? Idolatry is basically when you worship anything that is not God. So creation rather than creator. Okay? When you worship anything that's not God, worship anything in the place of him, it's an idol. Okay? So almost everything that we love more than God, everything we love more than God, I should say, is an idol. Okay? Now, the heart of idolatry, the makeup of idolatry is this, that we want to create a God that suits what we want. Okay? We want to create a God that suits what we want. Now, I want you to look with me at the progression and I'll tie that in. I want you to look with me at the progression of our television in America just in the last 60 years. This is kind of interesting. Okay, so 50s, 60s, 70s. Anyone alive in here during that time? Yeah? A few, few? <laughs> cool. Very cool. Um, so uh, the 50s and 60s and 70s could be known as the era of the wholesome family entertainment, right? We had shows like Andy Griffith, which is one of my favorites. I Love Lucy, Leave It to Beaver, Ozzy and Harriet, Cheers, those kinds of shows. Were, those were like sort of the top five or six from those eras. Um, the era of wholesome entertainments where Americans were portrayed as they wanted to be, okay? They wanted to see on the screen what they wished they were, okay? Everyone wanted to be Andy Griffith as a dad, right? I mean, everyone wanted to be these people, and so it was sort of like, let's watch them because it frees us up and makes us kind of be able to enjoy what we should be by watching these guys. Also, Americans prized public morality still at that time. It wasn't really um, looked at as something impressive to be immoral publicly. Then the 80s and the 90s come along, okay? Uh, this is the era of, as I would call it, this is just my thought, the era of the sitcom. Okay, the era of the sitcom, this is where we see shows like The Cosby Show, Full House, Friends, Seinfeld, Home Improvement, The Simpsons, Roseanne. Okay, the era of the sitcom. Now, the sitcom marks an interesting progression in our culture. It goes from, we want to watch people that look like what we should look like, to we want to watch people that closely resemble what we actually look like. Okay, I mean, the reason you can sit in your recliner and laugh at Homer Simpson is because you know in the back of your head, that's kind of how we are. In fact, Homer Simpson is like the perfect example of, unfortunately, most dads in this country. So you kind of laugh at it. Seinfeld, they poke at things in life that are really true. Like, that's funny because it's true. Um, and so that was kind of the era of this sitcom, sort of this like, yeah, I can relate with that. What, what it did was it started to creep in that sinful behavior was more culturally, culturally normal. Does that make sense? So because I can sort of laugh at that now, now it's kind of okay that I do it. Like, I never used to want people to see that I was that kind of dad, but now that he did it in that show, now it's sort of okay that I can do it. And it was an escape for people because they could just laugh off their downfalls, their shortcomings. Then we have 2000s to today. Okay, this is what I would call the era of reality TV, right? Okay, where we don't watch sitcoms as much anymore, definitely. We primarily watch reality TV. Okay, we watch shows like, I don't watch shows like, we watch, some of us watch shows like Honey Boo Boo, Hoarders, Cops, The Bachelor, The Voice, and all of these shows have one thing in common. People are idiots, and it makes us feel so good about ourselves because we're like, I'm not as stupid as that guy, and I clean my house more than that lady. I can actually walk to my front door, so I'm actually not as jacked up as they are, right? So what is that? I mean, that is a release of guilt. It's a freedom because they say, I'm not as bad as them. And not only that, but it's a way to live your life through people. It's a way to live fantasies and scenarios that you would never get to live. Okay? And that's, and that's really what it is. Now, what do all three of these eras have in common? 
all three of them have in common that they are an escape. They're an escape. They're a way for you to come home and forget about your life. Forget about the hardships of your day. Forget about your shortcomings. Forget about your sin. Forget about where you're screwing up, where you're failing. And it just allows you to sort of forget and move on to the next day where you go to work again. Now, what does it have to do with idols? Okay, the most blatant example of idolatry we have in the scriptures is the golden calf, right? So God frees Israel. Follow me on this. God frees Israel. They're out in the wilderness. Uh, they're at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to do some business with the Lord to hear the Ten Commandments. He's up there for a while. And meanwhile, all of these uh, newly freed Israelites, not really sure what to do with themselves, still, still kind of in limbo, are like, what do we do? What do we do? So what they do is they say, let's, I got an idea. Let's gather up all of our jewelry, and all of our gold, let's melt it down. And Aaron, why don't you make a cow for us? And we're going to worship that cow because that's kind of what we used to do in Egypt. It's reminiscent of how we used to do things there. Now, why did they want to do that? For the same exact reasons that we want to watch TV all the time. Because it makes an idol that we can control. Because it distracts us from the way things are. They wanted instant comfort. Man, this is crazy. We're in the wilderness. We just left our homes. Okay, there's a God that delivered us, but we don't know who he is or what he looks like. We just want comfort. We want something to just relinquish the pain that we're feeling. So build a cow and let's worship it, okay? Um, they need something to distract them from the reality of their situation. They need something that appeased their need to worship and gave them control over what they worship. So they made a cow, Okay? Entertainment accomplishes all of these momentarily. We don't want to deal with what's going on in our lives, so we just flood it out with distraction and entertainment and whatever form that is. It may not be a sitcom, it may be a smartphone, but whatever it is, we can drown out having to deal with stuff because we can distract ourselves. We are professional distractors, aren't we? We're so good at it. We're so good at distracting ourselves. Now, the second danger I see in entertainment. So not only is this being able to distract yourself, but secondly, entertainment is a bad theology teacher. The two worst things you can do with the subject of entertainment is this. You can either throw it all in the garbage, say it's all evil, or the second thing you can do, which I think more of us actually do probably, um, in our culture is to just embrace it all and just say, you know what? I just kind of watch whatever. Okay, I just kind of watch whatever. I don't think much about it. I just kind of take it all in. I want to talk about why that's dangerous. So secular media always, let me say this, secular media always has an agenda. They don't do things just mindlessly. They always have an agenda. And that, that may sound sort of like I'm overthinking it, but it's true. It's absolutely true. Listen to this. EastEnders actor Michael Cashman planted the first gay kiss on British primetime TV in 1987. He said about this gay kiss, the first one, it was a public uproar, everyone was upset about it. He said, quote, public taste has to be developed. Public opinion has to be led. And television and the media are central to that. Okay? He knew what he was doing. He knew what they were doing. They were driving forth culture. They were driving forth theology. They were driving forth people's worldview through TV because that's what we're all watching. Poet T.S. Eliot believed that the culture we consume just for, quote, fun, with no thought of grappling with heavyweight thesis, has the most effect 
on us. That means the things that we think don't affect us probably affect us the most. The things that we just turn on mindlessly in the background, the things that we aren't engaging our brain about are usually the things that shape us the most. When we think something is relatively frivolous, we disable our alarm systems in our head. They say, wait a minute, that's wrong. I don't believe that. I disagree with that. Now, this is interesting. Comedians know this. Comedians know that laughter causes you to listen in a way that you wouldn't normally. George Carlin said, a comedian, he said, once you get people laughing, they're listening. Isn't that interesting? And you can tell them almost anything. Okay, so secular culture, secular media gets it. They know that in order to sell a lie, they simply have to make it seem like it's no big deal. And then instantly we take it in. Steve Turner, the same book, Pop Cultured, Pop Cultured, he said, when we suspect that culture has an agenda, we are naturally more guarded. When we think that it is only there to tickle us, we roll over and start purring. Okay, that's money. That is a money quote. Because the reality is, is when we're sitting in our recliner, mindlessly tuning out to whatever show comes on next, when we're mindlessly flipping through our smartphone to whatever ad pops up, whatever news article is next, whatever comes on, you're basically rolling over and telling the enemy and telling secular culture, just tell me whatever you want. I'm completely open to it. It's just mindless. What does it matter? How does it affect me? The entertainment industry has become our modern-day theologians. They've become our modern-day philosophers. They decide for us what we believe as a culture. They decide for us oftentimes how we think and what we think. That's why some of the people that are winning in the race are winning because they're on the news all the time. And a lot of what we think about is just basically because of what we hear, what we see. Think about the 60s, okay? Who was it that drove the hippie movement? Who was it that drove the ideologies and the philosophies of the hippies to do what they did? It wasn't some philosopher. It wasn't some theologian. It wasn't some politician. It was the Beatles. It was Bob Dylan, right? It was the musicians of the time. Music itself was the vehicle that the ideologies that were believed in the 60s by the hippie movement were actually driven forward, which is just totally true. Now, the battlefield is always the mind. It's always the mind as a Christian. We have to recognize this. The battlefield is always the mind. Paul says in Romans 12 too, you've heard it. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now that word world, okay, do not be conformed to this world, can also be translated age. And age is basically the thinkings of your era the understandings, uh, the way that people think in your culture. So don't be conformed by the way that your culture thinks. Romans 8, 6, Paul says again, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Okay, if you guys hear anything, hear this. Everyone is a theologian. Can we say that together? Everyone is a theologian. Try it one more time. Everyone is a theologian. One more time. Everyone is a theologian. You guys are so sleepy. Um, I don't blame you, man. It's hard coming here after work. Um, everyone is a theologian. Eminem is a theologian. Did you know that? He's a, he's a theologian. Everyone is. Because everyone is giving opinion, everyone is giving thinking, and everyone is giving worldview. Now, most people are heretics, but everyone's a theologian. Does that make sense? So not everyone is a very good theologian. Let me, let me explain what theology is, okay? Theology is the study of God, 
okay? That's why we emphasize it here, not because we want to be dry and crusty. We, we emphasize theology because it's the study of God. Can you think of anything better to study than theology? I can't. Okay, so theologians mean that everyone has a view on God. Richard Dawkins, the atheist of atheists, is a theologian because he's out there preaching, preaching a message that says there is no God. Therefore, he's a theologian. Okay, everyone's a theologian, but most people are heretics, okay? And most, almost everything that you hear, I'll just say everything that you hear on the radio, on your smartphone, on the computer, on YouTube, on TV is theology. It's just mostly bad. It's mostly bad. So when you think that way, you say, is this right? Is this wrong? Think critically about it. So if everyone's a theologian, then what is the message primarily that is getting pumped through us and to us by media? What is the message? Let me say this. The secular media will sell what we want to buy. Does that make sense? They will sell what we want to buy. Why does sex sell? Because people want it. Okay? So the secular media will always sell what we want. Now, what do we want? We want, in our sinful state, humanity as a whole wants a theology that makes you God. Okay? That I'm God. I make my decisions. I want a theology that happiness is to be worshipped, that everything should be about my joy, my happiness. I want a theology that God is whoever I want him to be. I want a theology that uh, sin does not exist, that truth is relative, that I'm not a bad person. And those are the theologies that you hear primarily in secular media because those are the theologies that man and his sinful nature wants to hear. Just the way that it is. And I'll say this, Satan has never had more opportunity to pump bad theology into the minds and hearts of Christians than now. It's never, ever been that possible because we've never had that much garbage flowing through our minds every second, and Satan is loving it. He is loving it. He is breaking you down in your mind. He is breaking down your understanding of God, your understanding of God's love, God's holiness, God's plan for you, what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a disciple, breaking down your understanding of marriage and sexual orientation and what, what all of these things are supposed to be, and he's doing it brick by brick by brick by brick in your mind, and you don't even know it. We have to wake up. Entertainment is a bad theology teacher. Number three, and this is quick, Entertainment can cause a degradation of conviction. A degradation of conviction. I'm going to read you a quote from about 2,000 years ago. I want you to follow this, okay? Um, it was by a church father named Tertullian in AD 210. He says this, The father who carefully protects and guards his virgin daughter's ears from ever polluting word takes her to the theater himself, exposing her to all its vile words and attitudes. The one Again, who the streets lay hands on or covers with reproaches, the brawling pugilist in the arena gives all encouragement to combats of a much more serious kind. And he who looks with horror on the corpse of one who has died under the common law of nature in the amphitheater gazes down with most patient eyes on bodies all mangled and torn and smeared with their own blood. What is Tortullian talking about? Is he, is he talking about TV? He's talking about gladiators. The Christians in the second century, third century, pardon me, the Christians in the, the second and third century had the same exact problems that we do. And that was that daddy would cover the ears of his daughter when someone in the markets dropped an F-bomb. And then take her to the theater and let language 
flow into your ears, not even covering it because it's artistic. Or even more close to home, right, uh, you, you, you walk into a street and see someone that's just been murdered and you turn your eyes and you cover your kid's eyes and, and yet he's seeing people in the amphitheater watching gladiators just waiting for them to thrust that sword, waiting for them to cleave that person, waiting to see blood spray. Isn't that interesting? Now, I love war movies, so this is, this is something I'm wrestling with, okay? Um, something I'm wrestling with, but how interesting is it that Tertullian was faced with the same dilemma that we are today, that we are willing to let our kids and ourselves listen to and watch things that we would never, ever allow them to in real life. But yet, because it's coming through speakers and a TV screen, somehow that's okay. Just think about that. Just pray about that. I know I am. The more you watch, the less it seems evil. Have you noticed that? The more you watch it, the less it seems evil. And I have to ask the question, can you watch evil over and over and over and yet still relinquish yourself from any enjoyment or unity in the actions that you're watching? I don't know. I don't think so. Paul says this, Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, noble, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So that's my case against entertainment. Um, hopefully you're really confused because that's kind of where I am. Um, it's good, but it's also bad. So just quick just quickly, just five, and these will be quick, five course-correcting questions, okay? Uh, if you're on a boat and you're headed somewhere and you set in the navigation and you get off course, it's very important that you type in and get your course corrected. And so these questions hopefully will be helpful um, for the Holy Spirit to just help you guys think through, do I need to make course corrections when it comes to entertainment in my home, when it comes to entertainment on my phone, when it comes to entertainment in every area of our life? Number one, course-correcting question number one, what are you hungriest for? What are you hungriest for? So my wife and I have been making some diet changes, right? And uh, we've cut out a couple things out of our diet. Not completely, I mean, I still, I, I had a cookie about an hour and a half ago, confession. Um, but we've been cutting, oh, I'm so hungry, I just, oh. um, anyways, <laughs> uh, we made some diet changes. And, and, and what we did was we cut out um, sugar and like processed carbs, okay? And, and the reason we did that is, well, there's a lot of reasons I'm not gonna talk about it. But basically what I've noticed is after like a month or two of eating good food, my cravings started to change. I used to crave pizza. Now I'm like, man, I crave like salad and salmon and, 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 and smoothies and eggs and chicken, all these good things that we've been eating. I've noticed that my diet actually tells me what I want to eat. So if I'm eating junk food, I'm going to crave junk food, okay? Um, what's happened is, is that we've engorged on such a large amount as Americans, as Westerners, as Christians, uh, such a large amount of rice cake movies and TV and stuff that doesn't challenge our brain, stuff that ultimately just makes us sick, stuff that really doesn't take any thinking. I don't know about you guys, but like when I get home, especially after Wednesday nights when I teach, I'm like, babe, can we just turn on a really dumb movie? Because I just want to turn my brain off, okay? And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but what's funny is that like sometimes that's all people want. They don't want anything that's going to challenge their mind, make them think about Jesus, cultivate their brain. They want something that just can shut their mind down. And what I'm saying is that when you start to take in things that challenge your brain more for the gospel, you'll start to crave those things. So unbeknownst to this teaching, my wife and I just decided, hey, we're gonna, we were convicted. We're like, we're just going to take 30 days and stop watching movies for all. We'll do a movie night here and there, but we're just going to stop watching TV and, and see what happens. And what's really been interesting about that is I've found myself... Like, my appetite has changed. 
When I get home, I'm not just like, oh, I want to just hop on and watch something entertaining. It's like, I want to read. I want to learn. I want to challenge my brain. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with my kids. And my appetite has changed. So I just want to challenge you guys on that. Okay, there's nothing that would kill you about a 30-day fast, okay? To say, hey, and we're going we're gonna to eliminate this from our life for 30 days and just see what life would look like. How different would it be? Um, and I've been really impressed, actually, with how much life I was missing um, because of stupid things. Number two, course correction, number two, where do you go for rest and safety? Where do you go for rest and safety? Uh, the reality is, is that we all get tired, we all get anxious, we all get stressed, and we all run to something or someone when we want to be comforted. I don't know about you guys, but for most of us, we usually run to entertainment. Because, as I said earlier, it allows us to check out. It allows us to feel good about ourselves. We can watch someone else's life on reality TV and forget about ours, right? A lot of us run to entertainment for that reason. It's interesting if you look at a heroin addict. Um, a heroin addict has to keep doing heroin because he can never get that hit to feel as good as it did the first time. Okay, so we run back to the same things that made us feel really joyful and good once, but it just doesn't really work the second, third, the fourth time. Okay, now the problem is, and I think the, the part where we may look like healthy Americans, but really we look like starving people, is because we're actually running to nothing to save us in those moments. We, are, we have real pain. Now, pain is a good thing, by the way. Pinch myself. My body's telling my brain that something's wrong. Stop doing it. If I break my leg, pain's shooting in my mind to tell me that your leg is jacked. Stop walking on it, okay? So what's happening is we're experiencing pain, which is a good thing. We talked about this in the suffering teaching, okay? Which is a good thing. And then we're not dealing with it. We're just shoving it and distracting ourselves. Whereas, if we were running to Jesus for our rest, for our safety, getting in the scriptures, praying through things, actually dealing with these things, we would actually be able to get healed, but instead we're just stuffing and ignoring and being entertained some more. It's really what we're doing over and over and over again. And Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Number three, do you know how much your entertainment bill is. And I don't mean the price of money. I mean, do you know what it's costing you to spend a majority of your life or your free time on entertainment? The girl watching The Bachelor, okay, for most of her single life is going to pay a price for that when she has a really jacked up idea of what dating your husband looks like. Just saying. The woman watching hours of soap operas centered around adultery is going to pay the price when she finds her heart being led to another man because everything that she's consumed has made her think she'll have joy if she finds another man. The absent father watching hundreds and hundreds of hours of football every week is going to pay the price when his wife leaves him, his marriage crumbles, and his kids walk out the door and hate his guts because he didn't lead his house. The man who compromises by being entertained with sinful content will pay the price as he watches his soul and his body be life sucked out of it time and time again. Guys, do we understand? I know this seems like heavy, okay? But do we understand the bill? Do we understand what it's going to cost if we spend the majority of the time that God has given us freely on these things? Number four, and this is huge. Really listen on this one. I know it's getting late. Are you taking the easy route? 
Okay, are you taking the easy route? Now, what's the easy route? The easy route is if you're wired legalist, which, hey, that's me, okay? If you're wired to be a legalist, if you're the prodigal son, not the prodigal son, but the other son, the one's like, hey, I was here the whole time. I'm awesome. Where's my feast? If you're that son, here's the easiest thing for you to do. Entertainment's evil. Throw the TV in the garbage. Get rid of the computer. We're never watching it again. Kids, you're only watching uh, Veggie Tales. That's it. Okay, now, if you are convicted to do that, then do it. I know people that are convicted to do that. But I, I actually think that's the easy route. I also think the easy route is the person that says, you know what, I, I'm not really going to worry or think about what I should or shouldn't take in. I'm just going to watch whatever. And, and, and it's just, I'm just watching it. What does it matter? Okay, those are the two easy ways out. The hard way out, the way that we want heritage to be, is a people that don't say, we're just going to throw it all in the garbage. They're people that actually have to work through it with the Holy Spirit day in, day out. I want your kids to see how you turn the channel. We want our kids to see how we pick movies in the movie store. We want our kids to see why we throw the, the TV in the garbage. We want our kids to see how we navigate our smartphones. We want to raise our kids and the people around us to see what it looks like to have a tangible, second-by-second, day-by-day, real walk with God, the Holy Spirit leading and guiding when it comes to entertainment. That's what I think a real Christian should be challenged to do, not just to throw it in the garbage and not just to ignore it altogether, but to say, I'm gonna walk through this and I'm gonna let my kids see how to live in a culture that's secular. I'm gonna let my kids see when they should turn the channel. Does that make sense? And then number five, and this is like pet peeve, but I do it too. Uh, it's your, is your entertainment setting unrealistic relational expectations? This is what this looks like, okay? This is the last one. This is what this looks like. I, I'm, I'm sitting in a group, and I can't focus on the conversation because I'm so used to being stimulated in my head with TV and with things that are just more interesting than my friends that even though they're talking, I'm just sitting here checking my email. Like, this, this is something that we have to, have to deal, deal with. You're ignoring your wife because something is so much more important on your phone than your wife and what she's saying. Yes, I do that sometimes. You have to have the TV on in your house because you can't handle awkward silence when people come over. You can't handle quiet because then you have to actually think and process through things. I'm not saying that's a sin. I'm just saying think about this. And then lastly, you can't focus at church because you're so used to being overstimulated that you're waiting for the person up there who can't possibly do it to compete with the $15 billion produced movie that you just watched the night before. Okay, um, A.W. Tozer said, this is a church that can't worship must be entertained and people who can't lead a church to worship must entertain. Unfortunately, I feel as a preacher um, and as a worship leader and as a pastor, I feel this constant nagging, not from you guys, but just from the West in general, just from our culture, this constant nagging to compete for people's attention. To feel like if I get up and talk for 45 minutes, people are going to die because they are so stimulated all the time by more exciting things than me speaking. And it's really sad. I think the church has really suffered and really struggled from that because people don't know anymore how to sit and just listen, how to sit in silence, how to sit in quiet, how to sit with just their family and just play on the floor with the kids without something stimulating them all of the time. So those are five course correcting questions, just things to think through, um, things to pray about. My prayer for you guys is that we would think critically 
okay? That we would think critically, that we would see everything as either good theology or bad theology. Please remember that. Everyone is a theologian. They're just mostly heretics. That we would love what is holy, that we would despise what is sinful. And this is key, not that we would love entertainment less, but simply that we would love Jesus more. It's not that we would love entertainment less, it's that we would love Jesus more. We have to think about that with the things that we love. I love my kids. I love my wife. I love you guys. I love this church. I love my job. And, and, and if I try to love those less, I'm going to fail. But I don't have to worry about loving that less. I just love Jesus more. And it puts everything in perspective. Seek you first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. So don't go home and say, oh, I've got to love my TV less. I've got to love my phone less. I've got to spend less time on it. Yeah, maybe. But love Jesus more. And everything will drop into perspective. I want us at Heritage to be a church of people that, that don't just say, well, Sam said to do that, or Jeff said to do that, so I'm going to do that, or my favorite pastor said to do that. No, people that say, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to lead my family? What do we do with media? What do we do with entertainment? What do we digest? What do we eat as a family, as a people? We're not Christians because of what we don't do. And we're not Christians because of what we're against. Did you know that? We're not Christians because of what we don't do, and we're not Christians because of what we're against. We're Christians because of who we trust and because of who we love. That's what makes us Christians. So, um, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll try to answer some questions. Lord, would you solidify this in our hearts? Lord, whatever was just me ranting and raving on a soapbox, would you throw it in the garbage? And Holy Spirit, would you allow whatever was, um, whatever was supposed to be said to really sink into the hearts of your people? God, this room is filled with people that want to serve you better, moms and dads and brothers and sisters and, 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 and all these different stages of life that want to glorify you. And would you give us wisdom? Lord, lead us and guide us, we pray.